I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 77, we read How to Be a Conservative by Roger Scruton, published in 2014. Roger Scruton was born in Lincolnshire, England in 1944. He earned a philosophy degree from Cambridge University in 1965 and a PhD in aesthetics from the same school in 1972. He was a lecturer and professor of aesthetics at Birkbeck College, London, from 1971 to 1992, where he became known as a premier voice in conservative political philosophy. At the same time, he worked to establish underground academic networks in Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe. Scruton was the author of more than 50 books and died in 2020 at the age of 75. 50 books, my goodness. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so for Scruton, conservatism starts from a sentiment that good things are easily destroyed but not easily created. I'm going to come back to that because I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. The work of destruction is quick, easy, and exhilarating. The work of creation, on the other hand, is slow, laborious, and dull. He says, we have collectively inherited good things that we must strive to keep. Opportunity to live our lives as we will, security of impartial law, protection of uh, the environment as shared assets, open and inquiring culture in schools and universities, democratic procedures, all are under threat, he says. Conservatism is the rational response to that threat. And he makes the, at the beginning of the book, he makes this observation that it's largely in English-speaking countries that political parties and movements call themselves conservative, which is, you know, kind of interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably gives us an idea for further exploration. Because what is, what is conservatism in Cameroon or Gabon? <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I don't know. Or even in, in Japan or, or in, yeah, in France Japan. even. No, I think that's, a, that's an important point he makes, and it kind of comes up again and again throughout the book, is, you know, he, he looks at the English common law. And how it's sort of this accretion of cases and precedents from nearly a thousand years now. And it's all customary. It's all law from the bottom up. It's, you know, it was acts of par- acts of parliament came into it here and there. And just as statutory law came into it in America. But the whole structure of law came about in a strange organic way, in a way that uh, is sometimes confusing and contradictory and varies from place to place. It's this very, it's a deeply English conservatism. And, but it also, I think it reflects the way a lot of American conservatives look at some things. And it's, I don't know, just the way he writes too, it's just, it's beautiful and English and it feels you know, as I'm reading it, I feel like I'm in an English country village. And I've never been yeah. to an English country village, so I don't know <laughs> if that's an accurate feeling. <laughs> but it's uh, it has just this feel of timelessness, his writing. And it's also, that's what he's writing about. Is that the, these, the customs of life, the laws by which we were customarily governed came about in a way that's not permanent and static. It, it does change. It's affected by things, but it's it's very diffuse and uh and bottom up in a way that no other political philosophy really is yeah i agree i mean it was a delightful read he he has a philosopher's mind 
which is something that we haven't been as used to, I think, maybe in times past with, uh, with a Buckley or maybe an Irving Crystal. I'm not sure, and you and I were talking about this a little bit, but I'm not sure that we have someone like that who, who really is a philosopher, but is coming from the right. And so yeah. speaks the, the language of philosophy, but Scruton also seemed to really have a, a pretty solid grasp on the debates, the p- policy debates of the day. And so, the, you know, he kind of bridges that gap while also, you know, doing well to quote well beyond Burke. I mean, he was, he, he was quoting Nietzsche and, and so forth. So really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He clearly uh, was immensely well read and understood the, the left and the right and everything in between. And, uh, you know, people have been telling us to include Scruton on our list of books for, for since we started the podcast, I think. And I can see why, because this, this is just, I mean, we could, I think we could have done an entire season on this book, on this book. People would have eventually got bored of us talking about it, but each (laughs) chapter has, uh, has so much in it. I, when I was preparing my notes, sometimes I'd look back at a page and the whole thing's highlighted. Well, you know, that's, yeah. Kind of defeats the point of highlighting, but every there, there's so much here. Really, it was a, a delight. And he, the way this book structures, he, he looks at all of the other non-conservative philosophies and, and sort of finds the truth in each of them, That which is kind of an interesting and that's a broad-minded approach you don't get in politics that often. You think, well, mm-hmm. the socialists are right about this. The liberals are right about this. The multiculturalists are right about this. And then here's the things conservative conservatism can take from that. And just really, uh, really fascinating. All right. So let's jump in. Yep. I'm going to reread this line because I thought it was really good. Conservatism starts from a sentiment that good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. I mean, that sounds like a line from you've all of in, but it, but he didn't quite say it like that. I think that I just think this is so right. And it, and it's kind of funny because we've been doing this for almost three years and, Mm-hmm. And uh, I after I read this line and had kind of a little bit of an aha moment. It's kind of like, yes, that's what it is. I mean, it's it's very difficult to build institutions to build things up. And when I've listened to Yuval Levin in the past, and we had him on the podcast, I, I love what he has to say, but I'm always a little skeptical because I'm thinking it takes a hundred years to build an institution, you know, for for people to accept and to embrace certain aspects, you know, institutions in society. And I mean, for the family, it's, ta- you know, it takes hundreds, thousands of years and we tear it down in a minute. So this sentiment that good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. I just think that that might, I feel, I feel like that should be a, almost our new uh, theme of the podcast. Or, yeah. Or one of it, yeah it, it boils it right down, doesn't it? I mean, and, and, it, and it, it takes so long to create, and he, he quotes Hayek to this point a few times in, in different chapters that because they're, these things are not being decreed from above, you know, all of the, the good things in our little neighborhoods and towns are good because they're things that people came together to do. And they're, they're not, it's not just the distribution of a, a program that Washington is declaring you have to have. It's, it's some, you know, the, the institutions of life, you know, your, your Boy Scout troop, your, your little league, you know, the, the little things and Tim Carney talked about some of these things in his book that we read a few episodes back, all these local things come together because people sort of coalesce it, almost in the way 
like rain water molecules coalesce into a cloud and eventually into a rain you know it's it's not there's no design it just happens by a sort of human gravity so of course it takes a long time to create because nobody's directing it and if anybody did direct it it wouldn't be the same thing it wouldn't be the, the thing that the community values it would be the thing that some planner in some other place values right right so it's it's like growing a plant you can't just do it overnight it has to take root and 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 grow up and and take in all of the, the local nutrients and i think that that conservatism that that cherishes that thing and and preserves it is there's that line going back to Burke of of the community of of generations of the you know, contract among the generations, and here's here's what it's about because it is easy to destroy a new thing. And you know Burke was writing about the French Revolution. Scruton's writing in the time of, I mean he was uh, he talks about the the uh, sort of disruptions of the of 1968 in Paris that he witnessed, which was sort of like their version of our hippie movement. An anti-war movement, and and just the uh, the embrace of destruction, and tear it all down, mm. start over, sort of spirit that they had the same as as we were having, and all the postmodern stuff and that came out of that. He witnessed that and and compared it to just the, the life of the average Englishman back home, and saw like this is this is madness. They want to tear everything up, and they don't even know what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. So he starts the book with a conversation about one thing that he he believes is good and valuable and should be preserved, which is a shared identity. And, and he has a con- long conversation about borders and nationalism that I think we should, is worth diving into. He says, a shared identity takes the sting from disagreement and makes rational discussion possible. It's the foundation of any compromise. And he goes on to describe, so unless and until people identify themselves with the country, and when, he, when he's talking about a shared identity, he doesn't mean a non-binary, you know, whatever from, mm-hmm. <laughs> from our episode on uh, our episode on cynical theories. What he's talking about is a shared identity as a people. He says it must be a first person plural, a we to accept each other's opinions and disagree. People who speak the same language and live side by side. And he says, unless and until people identify themselves with the country, its territory and its cultural inheritance, the politics of compromise will not emerge. So we're talking about a people, a place, a history, an inheritance, a culture, a language. You know, he's he, he begins the discussion by basically saying, these days, any ordinary conservative, you know, anybody who speaks in these terms is immediately dis- discarded as a racist or, you know, a hate monger. He makes this great point that's just kind of the reality of human nature, which is that People come to define their identity in terms of the place where they belong. You know, this is a conversation we've had before. Mm-hmm. Where do you belong? Where do you fit? And part of that is your nation and your culture and your people and your inheritance and what's our history. And the left just disregards that, finds it as garbage and races something that needs to be torn down and other institutions that needs to be destroyed. Yeah, and he gives. Um, I mean, a lot of the book is focused on on English conservatism and English events, but he he gives a lot of credit to. America, too, and how we approach this problem, where he says, under the American settlement, people were to treat each other first and foremost as neighbors, not as fellow members of a race, a class, an ethnic group, or a religion, but as fellow settlers in the land they shared. Their loyalty to the political order grew from the obligations of neighborliness. 
and disputes between them were to be settled by the law of the land. And he's talking about our shared laws and our and how it makes a shared people. But I think that's that's really something, and it's something that other nations don't always have. It's easier for us because it's a newer we're a newer country and we're made of people from different areas. But that that idea that we should treat each other as neighbors, treat each other as almost a kind of extended family. Mm-hmm. It's like you said his line about it takes the sting from disagreement. That's that's so important, I think, because if you see the other side as another tribe, you know, if you if you see liberals as just your enemy, or if they see us as just enemy, with no shared values, with no shared country, then there's nothing left. I mean, there's no that. I don't think we're headed for civil war, but that's the mindset that leads to civil wars because it, mm-hmm. you you see the other person is completely other. You know, we used to say things like politics stops at the water's edge, you know, and that we wouldn't know. Once we're at war, we rally behind whoever's in power. And, and we did this and, you know, and, and the English did the same. They, you know, when in, in world wars where they'd have their political disagreements at home and so would we. But when we're fighting a real enemy, you know, that's all right. This other stuff can take a backseat because we're all family here. And mm-hmm. it, that's I, I kind of hate that when I see. Like I, there was a news story about a some girl who denounced her mother because she saw her on tape in the uh, Capitol riots back in January, and those Capitol riots were despicable, I think. But I would never inform on my own mother, you know, no matter how crazy she was, <laughs> you know, and and, I, and my mother would never inform on me, and you know, thankfully neither of us are the kind of people that are going to invade the Capitol. But if we were, we're family first, and I, I think that. That sentiment, if you can't recognize it even within your own real family, you're never going to recognize it within your sort of broader national national family. And and that's a real loss because right? I don't think you can get stuff done together. I don't think you can compromise and reason together if you don't have that basic level of trust. And I think that's a lot what Scruton's getting to in this chapter about nationalism. Absolutely. And he says national boundaries provide an identity and you could say even your family boundaries, but your family boundaries or your national boundaries provide an identity to summarize rights and duties as a citizen. It defines your the duties that you have to other people. It defines the rights that you have. It, it defines your place in the world. And, and I know the left would say, well, we should all be citizens of the world and this sort of uh, pan-multiculturalism. But that's just not how the wor- human mind works. You know, It's just mm-hmm. not capable of capturing the entire world. Like, what's, what's my role in the world versus what's my role in this family? What are my duties to my mom? What are my duties to my children? And as an American, you know, what are my duties as an American? What are my rights as an American? What are my duties to other Americans? Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, uh, it's something that as that just the human mind and the human spirit just sort of needs, you know, maybe we don't go as far as maybe Carl Schmidt saying like everything is an us versus them, but, but there certainly needs to be a we, there needs to be an us, and that's uh, that's the argument he's making here, and I think very compelling. We need a we. He says, the European civilization depends upon the maintenance of national borders. The EU, which is a conspiracy to dissolve those borders, has become a threat to European democracy. I mean, from his standpoint, and I'm not a, a European expert, but why do we have Brexit? Now, this is part of it. I think mm-hmm. Britons wanted to feel like they're Britons, you know, and that this is the we. This is the us. And just kind of this convoluted pan multicultural we, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the 
it doesn't fit human nature. It doesn't fit people who want a history, who want a, who want a culture. And I loved what he said about this. He said, there needs to be territory. There needs to be history and customs. And when he was talking about that, he was saying rituals and customs occur here, which bind neighbors together in a shared sense of home. The stories, this is the interesting part. The stories may not be literally true. They may include large areas of myth. The stories are the product of shared loyalty, not the producer of them. The loyalty does not come about because the stories are believed. The stories are believed because the loyalty needs them. And I just strongly agree with that. And I did, I, I loved what he said there because I, I feel like when we were younger going through elementary school, there were stories, you know, George Washington and the apple tree. Even as a kid, I was like, eh, I, I don't know <laughs> if that really happened, but <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a real story, but you know, like whether it's a, a collective social myth or even some of the uh, Bible stories or something like that. I mean, not everything has to be like literally true to have meaning to to bring us together, you know, to have a shared cultural understanding. And the stories, they play a role in that as well. And that's what just kills me that we're doing everything we can to tear down our heroes, to knock them down, you know, 10 notches. And we can't even name a school after Thomas Jefferson in California, but not even going that extreme. Like we're, we're, we're pulling the curriculum back because you know, my goodness, like somebody made a mistake in their lives and they weren't completely perfect. And the fact is like humans are not perfect and they're going to make mistakes. And part of the reason that we have these stories is not, not to necessarily teach completely accurate history. Although I am a large, I'm heavily in favor of that, but we also need these, this shared understanding, you know, a, a background, something that we can fall back on and lessons learned and values that we share that sort of thing oh absolutely and that's that's where he he called he calls the opposite of this the culture of repudiation which if this were written a few years later might have called cancel culture you know it's the yeah. same thing the idea of trying to build a counterculture about destruction about about tearing down and uh, and he says conservatism is a culture of affirmation it's about the things we value and the things we wish to defend and yeah, I think that's why so many people rebel at the constant negativity. I mean, these are, you know, it's a it's a culture of of haters that is just uh, it's unpleasant. Whether I mean, even if the things they're hating are things that really happened, I mean, yes, Washington did own slaves, and we should hate slavery. That doesn't mean we should hate George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or James Madison. The ugliness that sort of tear it all down destruction you know it'd be sometimes people say in politics you can't beat something with nothing mm. but and that's nothing it is nothingness it is uh i mean all of this postmodernism and the applied postmodernism is not is just trying to build up a culture of cynicism skepticism without anything to replace what is being destroyed i think that can make you know it's, if we talk about it this way, if we tell people about it this way, conservatism can be such a more delightful outcome. It's preserving the good things. It doesn't mean preserving everything. And that's that's the sort of pushback you sometimes get with from when you talk about tradition. They're, oh, but a lot of traditions were bad. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I don't think any we haven't we were in seventy seven episodes now. I don't think we've read anybody who says everything has to stay the same forever. Yeah. They all admit that we learn 
And the tradition is the accumulation of, of learning and accumulation of judgment. And sometimes new events occur. Sometimes new knowledge makes its way into a community and, and change your mind about things. But that culture still allows us to keep the things that are good and to affirm them. And that is, that's just a much better way to live. Mm. And I think another criticism is sometimes this sort of you know, tradition and so forth can be exclusive which, you know, I think it, that's probably true. But the next step that they take is to say, everyone's tradition and culture is, is equally good and equally great. And let's just assume that that's true. I'll, I'll, let's just take that at face value and say that's true. Well, so what? We need to have ours, right? Yeah. <laughs> we need to have one that we share. You know, even granting, even if we granted and said, like, one culture is not better than another, which I don't grant personally, but let's assume that, that we do. Well... How are we ever going to get along? I mean, how are we going to come together? How are we going to have anything that we can lean back on or point to and, and sort of have a, any, sh- any shared understanding of the world if everyone's just sort of doing their own thing? And by the way, like they're tearing down liberalism as in classical liberalism just as fast because if we think that all this multiculturalism, critical theory stuff, I mean, that's a, that's a dash in the other direction. So... We, and he talks about this at length as well, that the Enlightenment was a move towards more uh, to liberalizing and, and it was a tearing down of traditions and some of that was not helpful, but some of it was good. But now we're beyond that to where we're tearing down what was torn down, <laughs> the next mm-hmm. thing, which is like, okay, uh, let's live in a liberal society where we'll tolerate each other. Actually, no, we can't tolerate <laughs> each other. We, we have to all, all agree that this one particular way that we all have to accept people on their own terms and rather than like having any shared, you know, understanding of the world and that sort of thing. So that's his argument for nationalism. Now, whether, whether others would agree that that's nationalism or not, to me, it's a little bit semantical, but, but the really point being like, this is worth conserving, you know, a history, a culture is worth conserving. Yeah. I think he, he takes from all these different backgrounds and and finds the different truths in them, but also leans on the idea that, each of these truths, if you make it your obsession, you can turn it into something ugly and, and a lie. And that's true of nationalism. And, I, you know, I mean, you can, if you become obsessed with the nation, that's when it turns into that aggressive nationalism, that ugly stuff that leads to wars, leads to conquest and looking down on other nations and thinking you should rule them. But that's not what nationalism is. This is, this is a thing that I, I can never really understand about the critical theory movement is that they, they look at the theory and then they see somebody applies it imperfectly and they say, see, it's all fake. You know, it's just, it's so deeply cynical, you know, you know, if somebody is preaching a Christianity and then they'll look at some well-known preacher and say, see, look at this notorious crime he's got caught up in, or look at, look at how much money he has, even though he says to give away things to the poor, that means the whole thing's fake, you know? And it's, it's so it's it's so depressing because it's the same thing about american our our liberal democracy our values of of 1776 you know where we talk about all men being created equal we talk about rule by by the people for the people consent of the governed all of these things and it wasn't 100 percent true when they wrote it i mean it wasn't enacted as true i mean it was the ideas were true but it it wasn't being lived out so the, the the critical theorist will say see it's just a just a lie to enforce the power structure but 
I, I don't know. It seems like a more reasoned approach to that is what we what most people have been doing in those times. Say, so, yeah, no, the ideas are good. Men are flawed. Let's try and make, let's try and live better. Let's try and take these ideas and have them inspire us to be virtuous. And knowing that we will fail, just try to keep those failures to a minimum. Try to you know back each other up. Try to help each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and and. Part of what you were saying too is he gets he 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 talks about this in one of the later chapters. A sort of contradiction at the heart of this is that yeah, all cultures are equal, but ours is also crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, wait a minute. You know, if if all cultures are equal, can I be proud to be part of Western civilization and and enjoy the Enlightenment and enjoy you know the traditions of reasons we have coming down from Aristotle, Plato? No. It's just power structure garbage. Spoken like a true oppressor, Kyle. That's who you are. <laughs> that's that's who I am, I guess. But it's it's his uh his chapter in the the truth of multiculturalism. He talks about this in chapter seven. He says that, you know there's there is a place for this sort of that we have to separate culture from race. Race and culture are different things, and you know where you come from is less important, almost unimportant, really what culture you're a part of is important. And that's a culture that's accessible to anyone. Right. These issues are bigger now than when he wrote this book, but this was a, this is a excellent refutation of a lot of the weird critical theory stuff we're hearing today. It's, he was kind of ahead of that already back in 2014. Yeah. And on that note, he gives America credit, maybe too much credit anymore with what he calls a, a civic culture. He says, a sense of the political process as consonant with national attachment as arising from and endorsing the place, the way of life, the inheritance of institutions and laws. That's like a 1776 America Mm -hmm. and maybe up till maybe the last 25, 30 years or something like that. But to the point you were just making there about uh, about immigrants and well, maybe not immigrants, but bringing different languages and colors or whatever bringing people together and and it's become completely uh cancelable for someone to to use the word uh, melting pot use that mm-hmm. term but we used to be proud of that we used to be proud of the fact that people could come here but he says our obligations to others to the country and to the state have been revised in a direction that has opened the way to the admission of people from outside the community okay so that's part of the melting pot And he says, provided that they too can live according to the liberal ideal of citizenship. Needless to say, many immigrants come to Western countries in search of the advantages that liberal jurisdiction brings and without understanding or accepting the costs. Now, I think that is more of a problem probably in Europe than it is in America. I think that most immigrants come here and they want to be American. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they actually, it's in it, but it's actually the political forces on the left that jump in their faces and say, no, you should keep your, you know, don't try to be us, be you, <laughs> you know, don't try to, to assimilate or, or whatever. I think that there's, that was a little crass, but I, I mean, I, th- I think that there's real pressure from some political corners for some immigrants to feel, to rather than identifying themselves as Americans and becoming more American and melting into this wonderful country and culture that we have to, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. That's a, that's a betrayal of your own history and your own culture. What we need is for you to, we, what, what we need is to celebrate our identities. I just had a, a conversation with, with a guy who was talking about his, I mean, 
his his parents immigrated. He, I mean, he, I'm pretty sure he was born in America, but his parents had immigrated here, and he just his mom like just couldn't quite get the fact like why why would we be why why would we criticize or not want to be Americans? You know, like mm-hmm. that's the whole reason we're here. Yeah, and, uh, that's my my grandparents are the same way. Uh, <laughs> on my dad's side, they're both uh, children of immigrants, and they both you know they they love their heritages, but they were Americans, you know, they didn't, they saw their parents saw the old world as, as backward and, and, you know, poor. And that, that's why they got out. You know, my, my great grandfather would say there was nothing back in Italy except rocks. And that's why he left. <laughs> and, you know, that spirit, I mean, of course, why, why would, why would you come to a country that you didn't like? You know, they, they, they saw America as that shining city on a hill, like Reagan would later say. You know, and that belt brought so many millions across the oceans to here. And of course they'd want to be a part of it. I mean, you don't drop every custom as soon as you get to Ellis Island, but certainly you recognize that you're in a new place. That's one of the, like the, the wide, widespread myths about immigration too, is that customs officers would change your name at Ellis Island because it was too hard or too weird or too foreign. That never happened. It was immigrants themselves often Americanized their names because mm. they wanted to fit in. You know, whether it was yeah. getting a job and they didn't want to look like they were different, they wanted to, you know, blend in with the average American. I mean, and maybe they were responding to forces of discrimination that we would frown upon. But it it was also that positive melting pot pull that, that you were talking about. This idea that they wanted to jump in that pot and melt away, it, that their grandkids would be no different than. The grandkids of a, a Mayflower descendant. That, yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And I think it also kind of plays into this thing that comes up again and again throughout this book of the uh, rights and duties as, as sort of obligations. He, he Scruton talks about his, Disraeli called it the, the feudal obligation because that's how feudalism did work. You know, you got your, your rights, but then there was an obligation in return. But instead of owing it to some lord or knight, you owe it to the community or to the country. He says, mm-hmm. the more we take from this arrangement, the more we must give in return. This is not a contractual obligation. It's an obligation of gratitude. But it exists for all that and it must be built into the conservative vision as a cornerstone of social policy. I think that's really true. I I, I don't think it's contractual in the way that, you know, oh, if you got a benefit from this community, you have to pay them back in kind. It's not. It's not exactly that. It's just this idea, this more amorphous feeling based approach really then it's not contractual it's hey this country's done a lot for me i owe them you know i mean yeah. I'm, I'm, i was lucky to be born here or if you're an immigrant you say i'm lucky to be able to come here you know and i owe this country something it's a great place so let me help out somebody else i think this is the real answer to privilege you know people talk a lot about privilege and their answer is to destroy the whole system that creates it but again it's that destruction is easy thing I think in the past, people who came from privileged backgrounds, they knew they were privileged, they, and they didn't think it was a birthright, typically. They didn't think, well, I deserve this, you know? I think the average guy who went to Harvard in 1900 knew he was part of a very small and elite class of of upper-class Americans who had these privileges. So what, what, what was his solution to it in those days? It would be, you know, to do charitable works. You know, if you have wealth, donate it. If you have time to donate that help other people that's that's an obligation of gratitude i think that scruton's talking about here 
instead of destroying, use the system to pull other people up. I, yeah. Again, it's it's affirmation versus destruction. And the, I think he, without being harsh about it, I think Scruton lays out a very clear dichotomy of of which side is which. And it it really, it, it's hard to argue with. And he's just, yeah. a, he, he elucidates the points perfectly and it makes a, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. I agree. And I think what frustrates me the most is I don't think, as we're talking about, I, th- I think the natural tendency of, of humans, certainly of immigrants, is to be proud of your country, you know, be proud of your people and have some, I mean, whether it's founded in, you know, some metaphysical truth of what you should be proud of, or people want to f- feel united. They want to feel like they're part of something. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like in the same way that I don't believe that kids... I don't think any kids are racist. I think you do have to be kind of taught and shown. Mm-hmm. I also think that there isn't any kid who hates America. You know, like you have to be yeah. taught and to, sh- to be shown. And, and I think he says to be inclusive, we are encouraged to denigrate what is felt to be most especially ours. It's this, it's, it's flipping the script. And in saying, instead of saying like to be inclusive, it's instead of saying, Hey, come be part of us. We'd love to have you be part of us. And, you know, bring what you have, but also, you know, like join us and, and be a part of, of who we are. Instead, we're saying to be inclusive, we have to say, don't do anything like us, you know, like yeah. join us in condemning the entire society and civilization you know, or whatever. He says the gentle advocacy of inclusion masks the far from gentle desire to exclude the old excluder. That's the key right there to repudiate the cultural inheritance that defines us. I think we're in a, we're in an era right now where the only way to show, to, to prove your, to demonstrate your virtue is to actively, openly, you know, rapidly try to exclude the old excluder. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that the old, it's okay that the the old excluders excluded, but that's not, I mean, that's not Martin Luther King's dream. That's not the, the dream or hope of America to, to turn the tables and stick it to the, whoever has been guilty in, in our history. Instead, it's to move in a direction of being more actually inclusive, you know, to be more actually welcoming and find ways to find common ground. And not only that, to generate, create common ground that we can share and that sort of thing. I think that's what frustrates me the most. And I, I feel like our schools are moving in a direction of instead of instead of teaching, like we shouldn't focus on our differences. We should focus on what we have in common and pull together. Instead, it's like, no, we need to highlight our differences and obsessively fixate on our differences. Yeah. I mean, you even have this slogan, diversity is our strength. What does that even mean? This is like, this is like a, Slavery is freedom. Peace is war. You know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I I think the normal. Resp- I mean, we talk about diversity. You know, talking about people look different. People's ancestors came from different places. I think the liberal response to that, and the thing that America used to be good at, it still mostly is outside of these weird academic discussions, is to look at those things and say, whatever. All right. It's interesting. You know. I mean, it's and there's nothing wrong with feeling some ancestral pride and, uh, you know, cause your people came out of this place or that place, but it shouldn't affect your daily life. And if it is, 
And if somebody is using it to affect your daily life, that really feels un-American. You know, I mean, somebody shouldn't be discriminating against you. That's the unity thing. And I get, I don't know what they want on the other side. That's the thing. I mean, here, here is a vision of real practical, sensible conservatism. And it's a lot of it's conservatism of temperament. You know, he talks about his father was a, a labor man through and through. But then he was also of a conservative temperament because he saw good things he wanted to preserve. And that was even though he was left wing in politics. I think there's yeah. a lot of that out there now. And that's part of this political reshuffling. Is, you know, you get people who they don't have any affection for laissez faire capitalism, but they do have affection for America and an affection for their town and their community and this, this or that institution within it, their church, whatever it may be. They want to preserve it. They want to, because they see it as a good thing, a good thing that came from, from somewhere and then it doesn't, they don't want it to disappear into nothingness. You know, I mean, we read these, we read liberal books because I think we want to try and understand where the other side's coming from. But I still don't totally get it. I don't get how you could look, read a book like this one we're talking about today and and say that it's bad because the way he described it just it's so it seems so true we should preserve the good things in life what's more important than that yeah so like you said we could we could actually do a chapter a week for the next year for this podcast but he has great conversations about environmentalism which is definitely different than uh than say republicans in america but but the welfare state is the one that i in the last two minutes here that i didn't want to miss because he just he had some good stuff he says the welfare state contributes to the creation of a new class of dependents <laughs> this is uh, so here's where he's almost uh, seeing eye to eye with uh with american conservatives mm. habits such as out of wedlock birth uh, malingering and hypochondria are rewarded and the habits are passed on from parent to child creating a class of citizens who have never lived from their own industry cost of the welfare state constantly increasing Free health care leads to ever-increasing health care costs at the end of life, pension liabilities that cannot be met from existing funds, government increasingly borrowing from the future, mortgaging assets of the unborn. So during COVID, Congress has spent $6 trillion. And just to put that in some context, the entirety of World War II in 2020 dollars was $4 trillion. So we've essentially paid for a World War II and a half. And now President Biden has proposed another 3 to $4 trillion bill. So basically another entire World War II that, uh, that we're going to spend. For nothing. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I mean, he talks a lot about this. I mean, he, Scruton comes back to that Burkean thing about the generations all being in contract together, uh, covenanted together. And this is what we're doing. You know, maybe you could say that last year we had to eat some of our seed corn because things were dire and, you know, there were choices that were made and, you know, we'll be second guessing them for years. But, okay, we had to, we had to do deficit spending last year. And I think a lot of people would have accepted that. Now they're just doing it because they can. And Out of ideological reasons. Yeah. You know, and he says... He says this is so well. In socialism, society is a zero-sum game in which the winner's winning causes the loser's loss. That is the frame of mind of this administration. And there was an interview with 
I won't name him, but a, a member of the administration in uh, works in the White House with Biden, and and just the breathtaking arrogance of thinking that you can play puppet master with the economy, and just by pulling this lever and twisting this dial, we can make all our dreams come true and happiness and unicorns. It's just, it's just so profoundly delusional, and it's driven by this ideology that, as Scruton says, injustice is conclusively proved by inequality. And just kind of this just fixation with with uh, how much people make versus others. Yeah, they, can't, they can't sleep at night. It has nothing to do with the economy. It has everything to do with these moral obligations, this moral requirements that we have as a society to like right every one of these, what they perceive to be wrong. And it's just, uh, it just reminds me in, in clear, clear language uh, why I'm conservative. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, if you're conservative, this book will tell you why and give you some things to think about. I think he, I guess to sum up, I, w- I would say he, he seems to have been a truly open-minded person. It's not a, it's not a screed. It's extremely thoughtful. And he, he, he looks at things other people on other sides of various issues have said. And, and does, I think, a fantastic job of saying, well, this point's true. This part makes sense. This really does speak to humanity's nature, mm-hmm. but where they go from it from here is wrong. You know, it's that is itself conservatism. It's open to ideas. It's not ideological. It takes the good from everywhere and preserves the good that we have. And that's that's what I think is so good about this book. I would absolutely recommend everyone of you who are listening check it out. It's a it's a fantastic read. Same and. I hope we have someone in America emerge, or maybe I'm not thinking of someone and listeners. If if there is someone like this, it just is a true philosopher in mind, but uh, cons- conservative when it comes to temperament, policy. I just don't know that we have it, and it would be great to have a leader like this. So, all right, that's it. That's Scruton. Catch us next time.